0: All right, if you can open up to Mark, Chapter 3. Sometimes it's fun to uh, have lunch with other pastors. I had seen on Rincon Mountains' Facebook page, there was a, a statement by Phil Cruz. as uh, He's currently in Mark, uh, but they're in the baptism. And uh, he and I were discussing a little bit at lunch the other day. I think he's going at a faster pace than I am. Um he hopes to get to the resurrection by Easter, but he knows that's not going to happen. But he's still going to preach uh, from Mark on the resurrection when it gets there. So um, hopefully he won't be led astray by listening to my sermons on Mark. So and may you not either. Mark 3, 13 through 19. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. Beargenes, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. May God bless the reading of his word. Father, help us to be encouraged by your word. Uh, To be encouraged by the ministry that you share with your people. To be encouraged by the way in which you support that ministry through the good news of Jesus Christ. That it's not just the ministry of the good news of Jesus Christ, but that you make it happen through the good news of Jesus Christ. Help us to... See him more clearly so that we can trust him more fully than this. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to tell you, uh, on the one hand, ministry is a great thing. Uh, I love ministry. And uh, many of you who are engaged in uh, your own ministries, you also have a a great sense of you do it because you enjoy it. It, It's satisfying in many ways uh, for you. Um, But ministry can also be incredibly confusing and incredibly wearisome because it takes place uh, in a fallen world, not an ideal world. And so pastors end up having a very high rate of burnout, and that's not just for pastors. Ministry leaders, lay leaders, often can experience uh, burnout as well, and sometimes, unfortunately, churches blow up over conflict. I want you to keep that in mind as uh, Jesus, um, well, not talks about ministry, but we see Jesus laying the framework for a leadership team here in Mark chapter three. As I read this I initially think, why did Jesus twelve choose these twelve guys? Okay, and We're going to look at that from verses 13 and then 16 through 18. Uh, Jesus' ministry by the Sea of Galilee, as we saw last week, drew great crowds. And Mark wanted to emphasize that. There are these great crowds, uh, but we see that Jesus once again uh, shifts gears. Uh, this time, instead of going into the cities or the towns, he goes to a mountain. He went up on the mountain. that's significant in the sense that mountains were places that were seen as being closer to God, God's dwelling place up in the mountains. And we see that it's significant within the Old Testament, not just the false religions around them, because the mountain is where Moses met God. It is the mountain where Moses was hid in the cleft of the rock while the glory of God passed by and God proclaimed His name. It is on the mountain that God meet, that Moses meets with God and receives the Ten Commandments that he gives to his people. But it's not just Moses. We see Elijah uh, being in a similar situation upon a mountain and hearing the still, small voice of God. And so mountains are a place where people met with God. And so uh, Jesus goes up on the mountain, but there is no account of Jesus meeting God on the mountain. And the implication being, of course, that Jesus is the God on the mountain that's going to meet with someone else. The mountain is not named here. There are a number of mountains in that region. So it's likely one of the mountains in Galilee. But I think this is important because God knows of our own human propensity to make holy sites of things and to to make um, in all about the site as opposed to what actually happens at the site. We don't know where the burning bush was. okay? And we don't even know where Jesus was buried, that tomb, but we've found plenty of places where we think it might have been and we've turned those into holy sites and where visitors go and everything else. And so God protects us, I think, from from ourselves in not revealing the identity of this particular mountain because it's not about the mountain. It's about the man on the mountain. It's about the God-man on the mountain, Jesus But he wasn't alone. He called to him those whom he desired. He called some of men to join him on the mountain. And in particular, he called twelve. Twelve. Out of all the people that followed Jesus, he singled out twelve individuals to join him. As we think about Moses on the mountain, let's not think that he was alone, but for a time, we saw, as we read from Exodus, that he was joined on the mountain, not just by Joshua, but also by the elders of Israel, the men who represented the twelve tribes. And so what we have here, in a sense, is that there is a new and a greater Moses who is going up on the mountain. He's greater than Moses because he is the Son of God, in particular, as the book of Hebrews Um, labors one of that point in particular through some of the main sections of it that Jesus is greater than Moses so we have this new Moses going on a new mountain and forming a new Israel out of the old Israel by choosing 12 men as his elders essentially as his apostles to represent the new 12 tribes so to speak that he is forming as a new Israel. An Israel in which the Gentiles are going to stream into and find protection and blessing. An empire, a kingdom uh, that will be Jew and Gentile, not simply Jew. But what I want us to think about is the fact that Jesus called to him those whom he desired. It's kind of an odd way to put it. We would normally put those whom he wanted. The implication here, part of the the, the range of meaning that this word has includes that of delight. And I think part of what is being communicated here is that Jesus delighted in these twelve men. That there was something about them that he took particular delight in. He spent time with them. And delighted in them. But what I want us to note here is that Jesus is not following the homogeneous um, plan of church planting, the homogeneous model of church planting, because these men are very different. Now, they're all Israelites, okay? Uh, But yet they're all incredibly different when we think about it. We have uh, two, maybe three sets of brothers. We're not sure if Matthew, also named Levi, which he was called the son of Alphaeus, and now here we have uh, another James or Jacob who goes by, who's also the son of Alphaeus. They might have been brothers. So there could be three sets of brothers amongst these 12 men. Half of them could be siblings. Sometimes that's a good thing, sometimes that's not such a good thing. We find fishermen, we find a tax collector, we find a zealot or a nationalist. Gee, I wonder how the tax collector, who was, or the former tax collector, who was often seen as a traitor to Israel, gets along with the zealot. <laughs> the tax collector who was wealthy, how does he get along with the fishermen who barely got by? And so we see that these men had different backgrounds. Different commitments before they came to Jesus. But we see as well that we have some nicknames, uh, or not nicknames, but G- Jesus changing Simon's name to Peter. But we know something about Simon or Peter that isn't obvious yet, but we know from other places in the Gospels, an impetuous sort of guy. You, you know that if someone was going to put their foot in their mouth, it was probably Peter. Peter who often acted without thinking, spoke without thinking. But he's not the only one, but we have we have John and Jacob, the sons of thunder. Now, what does that imply to you? Thunder. These are guys who are loud, they're boisterous and probably angry a lot. And somehow Jesus calls them into his fellowship. To be part of his leadership team. These flawed men, he invites to be part of his team. These men have different personalities, they have different cultural backgrounds. And yet, they're gathered around this God-man Jesus. They are committed to Him, and I imagine that they are therefore committed to one another. They're friends, despite their differences. There's some sort of chemistry that they experience with one another. And I believe that it is founded in the realities of the gospel. recognize, or we should recognize, when, when we meet with other people, that ministry often wearies the soul that doesn't delight in the diversity that Jesus draws. In other words, what I'm saying is, sometimes we don't find that diversity so delightful. Because it's hard. It really is. You know? I, I imagine, just, just picture for a moment... The twelve apostles sitting down for dinner, and you have Simon the zealot sitting across from Levi, otherwise known as Matthew, the former tax collector, and you think occasionally they disagreed on politics. Right? It's inevitable. We experience similar things. One of the things I love about this congregation is that we are diverse. Uh, perhaps not as diverse as we could be, but yet there is diversity—diversity diversity of background. You come from different places. Uh, people here are, were born on at least three different continents. We, we have we have people from Asia, people from Africa, sorry, four different continents, we have people from Europe, people that were born here people who speak a variety of languages, the people who um, just grew up in very different places. That's difference. And sometimes that can be hard to manage. It's, It's one thing to be from New England and another to be from California. Those are different places. Right? And then you throw in someone from France, and someone from India, it can get interesting, and that interesting can sometimes be wearisome because sometimes we don't take the time to understand uh, one another because that involves a lot of work, and sometimes uh, what we do is what we is we expect the the person who is least represented. Um, to make all the adjustments instead of realizing that all of us need to make adjustments. Okay. I almost feel like an old clip from U2 when Bono says, am I bugging you, man? That's a reality that, uh, that when we don't do that, ministry becomes incredibly wearisome, when we're not drawing upon the fact of justification, uh, that every person uh, that is here in this place is made right with God and therefore right with one another because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not because of their cultural background, not because of the color of their skin, not because of whom they voted for or didn't vote for or any of that stuff. But it all comes back to Jesus. Not just that, but the fact that Jesus delights in that other person that is so different from you. Just as he delights in you, who are so different from that other person. And so, in all of this, as we think about all of those different men, and as we think about ourselves who are very different, Jesus needs to be kept front and center We need to take the advice of Paul to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2 that we need to lay aside rights at times. That you don't always have to say what's on your mind. So that the other person feels like they can fit in too. That they have a place too. That they matter too. Even though they're a little different than you in some ways. And what I find striking about this is that It's the person with power that is intended to be the one who lays down their rights. Because if you think about Philippians 2, who had the power? Jesus. Jesus, who made himself a servant. Who humbled himself. And so Jesus builds ministry teams of what I see here as committed friends. They're committed first to Jesus, and because of that, they're committed to one another. And they're committed because they have been loved by God. They've been forgiven of their sins and brought into fellowship. So that's why Jesus chose those 12 guys. So let's ask what did Jesus choose these 12 guys to do? And we see that in verses 14 and 15. You see, Jesus isn't just picking out a posse of friends to hang out with, he's not finding guys that he can enjoy pizza and video games with, right? Jesus is building a ministry team for the new Israel. He is finding and appointing men who are going to share with him in this process of making the new Israel known to the old Israel and beyond. But first it starts with this fact, so that, or in order that, they might be with him. The first goal was to be with Jesus. That sounds unimpressive. But they needed to be with him to learn from him. He is the rabbi. They are the disciple. And that is intensely personal. And it means that it takes time. You actually have to be with him. And we'll see the impact this makes in places like Acts chapter 4. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized they had been with Jesus. What set those men apart was they had been with Jesus and had learned from Him. They're going to watch Jesus be a herald of the kingdom. They're going to watch Jesus heal people who are sick. They're going to watch Jesus love the people that seem unlovable. They're going to watch Jesus in ordinary life. They're going to see Jesus deal with life from a vantage point of faith, of hope, and of love. They're going to see it so they can catch it. And so discipleship here is is portrayed as intensely personal uh, precisely because ministry is going to be intensely personal. And we see that this is carried on through the ministry of the apostles. For instance, 1 Corinthians 4. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here it is. I urge you then, be imitators of me. You have to be with somebody to imitate somebody. 1 Corinthians 11 Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul imitates Jesus and he wants them to imitate him. Philippians chapter 3 Brothers, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. They saw how Paul lived and Paul says, walk the same way. We see it again in in Philippians chapter 4. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. We heard from First Thessalonians chapter 1. Again, Be come, you became imitators of us, the ministry team, and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. These men were with Jesus, became like Jesus, and then had others spend time with them so that they could become, those people could become like Jesus. There is life in the new Israel, that needs to be learned by people who have lived in the new Israel. Jesus didn't say, just come and spend time with me, but there was a purpose for that, that he might then send them out to preach, that he's going to make them heralds of this new kingdom. They're going to carry the message to other people, just as Jesus has carried the message to them. And we see something of a cycle that should be uh, evident to us, but let's spell it all out. They spent time with him to learn the message. They were changed by the message. They applied the message. And then they preached the message. And then go back to the beginning. Spending time with Jesus... To learn more of the message, to be changed more by the message, to proclaim more of the message, and then back. This cycle of ministry that takes place. And I want to tell you that Jesus still gathers and prepares people to learn and to preach the message. Now comes the part that we're not so sure about. to have authority over demons. This is the first time that word demons is used in in this text, in this this gospel. Up till now, it's been unclean spirits, uh, pointing to the fact that um, they're ceremonially and morally unclean. But here we have this word that points to almost like this idea of um, they're godlike in that they're more powerful than humans that they express some degree of authority. But here's the thing. Jesus is giving them his authority over the demons. Now, they're going to display that power indeed as they cast demons out of people. And um, that was, I think, one of the things that is for the apostles, that is not for us, um, at least in this place at this time. Um, we're not in extraordinary circumstances. But, sorry, that keeps falling out on me. Um, but I think what we need to remember is that because uh, they, uh, we are ourselves under the authority of Jesus, we are not under the authority of demonic powers. And therefore, we resist and expose their deeds. We do not submit to their temptation. We do not submit to their deception. But oppose them. And so Jesus proclaims the kingdom not just in word, but also in deed. And so we should in a way that fits uh, our place in the history of redemption, also proclaim the kingdom in word and in deed, even if it's not the casting out of demons. And some of you may disagree with me on that, and we can talk about that at another point in time. But as we think about this cycle of ministry, I thought of Sisyphus. That poor guy in Greek mythology, which is where the word demons actually comes from. You find that in Greek mythology. That unending cycle of rolling the the rock up the hill, only to have the rock roll down the hill and have to push the rock back up the hill, that's Sisyphus. Ministry can feel like that because you feel stuck in an unending cycle of new messages. Sometimes new people. That have to get brought up to speed on uh, how things are in this particular congregation. Uh, the whole new series of problems to address. It's hard. It's tiresome. And I think Paul again provides us with an answer when we think about Colossians one verse twenty nine. For this I toil. And he's talking about the the maturity. They're being um, presented to Christ in maturity and perfection. But he says that he struggles with all of Christ's energy that he powerfully works within me. And so we have this promise of Jesus to strengthen those who are engaged in proclaiming Christ in the kingdom. We have it through this gracious spiritual union with Christ that he supplies us with unending power to deal with the weariness of ministry. A power that comes from him, um, not a power that we ply out of him, that we force or cajole out of him, but he willingly strengthens his people so that they can pursue the things that he calls them to do. And so we see that Jesus builds and sends men and women to proclaim the kingdom In word and deed. Well, as I think about the the great stuff that's within this passage here in in Mark chapter 3, part of me goes, what is the risk of intensely personal ministry? What really is the main source of weariness that needs to be addressed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? And we see that in verse 19. In this otherwise optimistic passage, there is a foreboding note that points us to the impending, inevitable death of Jesus on the cross. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Judas is the kind of the Hellenization of Judah. And this will become important in a few moments because he's like another Judah. But think about this. Almost every time his name is mentioned in this gospel, it it is said, who betrayed him? He is known seemingly forever as the man who betrayed Jesus. Now, there's a sense in which you wonder... Did it leave such a wound on Peter and Mark that it's everywhere in this Gospel? Or is he simply just bringing us back to the fact that Jesus is going to die? I'm not sure which. It might be both. Because betrayal cuts deep. Judah so to speak, handed Jesus over to the corrupt powers in fulfillment of the Scriptures. And so it was not accidental that Jesus chose this man, but He chose him to be in His inner circle despite the fact that Judah is going to betray Him. This is in fulfillment of what we see in places like Psalm 55. My companion with whom I broke bread, he, Jesus says, is going to betray me. We see the first Judah selling his brother into slavery. It was his idea. They were initially going to kill him, but then decided, let's make some money off of this. Why should we go home empty-handed to a disappointed dad? Why don't we make some money and let's sell him into slavery? And so the first Judah betrayed his brother by selling him to the Midianite traders on their way to Egypt. What is betrayal? I mean, literally, it's that he was handed over to people in authority. But betrayal, in a broader sense, is when someone who is supposed to protect you chooses to harm you. That's betrayal. Someone who's supposed to have your best interest in mind puts their interest first in a way that that ruins you or destroys you or harms you. We talked a couple weeks about Julius Caesar And about his death. And you'll notice that the line that everyone remembers is, A too, Brutai. You too, Brutus? Why? Because Brutus was his friend. Julius Caesar could understand those senators that hated him, wanting him dead and killing him. But Brutus is a different story. Brutus is supposed to be on his side. And Brutus has turned traitor and betrayed Julius Caesar, and that's why we remember that line from Shakespeare's play. Jesus was not everything that Judas slash Judah wanted him to be, but like his namesake, his greed drove him to sell Jesus out. And I want you to to recognize this. It was greed that separated Judah from fellowship with Jesus and, and with the others, And it was greed that drove him to manipulate and deceive. We see in John 12, you know, Judas is being very critical. You know, hey, that money, that was wasted on the feet of Jesus. We could have sold that perfume and, and given the money to the poor. But John reminds us, he said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. And so Judah had a profound greed problem. And because he continually stole from the the common purse of the disciples, he grew increasingly distant from them, and then he would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. He's not alone. We see in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Demas, who in other letters had been praised by Paul, he says here in, in 2 Timothy, For Demas, in love with the world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas, who was part of Paul's ministry team, who had essentially promised to stick with him to the dire end, abandoned Paul because he loved the world, or in other words, he was greedy. The original audience of this gospel, who resided in Rome, had likely experienced betrayal by friends. And family, because they had converted to this illegal religion that would soon be known as Christianity. Some of them were rejected. Cast out of their homes. Some of them were turned over to the authorities and possibly put into prison. Ministry means that we will experience betrayal and sometimes even be a betrayer. I can remember a few people. One was a young lady who came here uh, a couple of Sundays in between positions. She had worked uh, at a, a church north of here and uh, then had worked at a church here in town. And I did some counseling with her because in the first situation she had been betrayed by the leadership. And she had these wounds that emerged from that. And it turned out that, that she walked right into another situation where she was going to be betrayed. I pointed her to Dan Allender, and I appreciate so much Dan Allender's work on betrayal and both "Fleeting with a limp and the healing path. And uh, you have some quotes there from those sources. Uh, but this young lady is not the only person. I spent time uh, at General Assembly sitting down with a friend of mine who is dealing with having been betrayed by another pastor and usually when I go to GA I meet my friend Eddie and Eddie um, he's now a a senior pastor and I think he's a little more sensitive to this Uh, but he was betrayed by a number of senior pastors when he was an assistant pastor this happens all the time where people are betrayed in the course of ministry But Jesus' betrayal at the hands of Judah is, is not just simply a sin, but really it lies at the heart of the Gospel for both those who betray and those who have been betrayed. It says to those who are betrayers, there is grace sufficient to cover your guilt over harming the one that you were meant to protect. There's grace there. There's forgiveness there's pardon. Now, Judah himself never received it. Peter did. We, we kind of clean his up by saying he denied Jesus three times. He betrayed Jesus. But he was restored because he repented. And the grace of God that was sufficient for that. But it also speaks to the betrayed. And what it says is that Jesus knows your pain and sorrow. He's walked in those shoes. He knows what it's like to have a companion turn on him and do him incredible danger and harm. And Jesus not just knows your pain and sorrow, but Jesus comforts and strengthens you gets back to that passage from Isaiah that Jesus quotes in His ministry. The bruised reed He will not break. The smoldering wick He will not snuff out. And so to the betrayed person, He comes alongside and protects you. Comforts and strengthens you. Offers to heal you and restore you. He refreshes you as one who knows the pain of betrayal. The one who, in fact, was betrayed so that he could forgive you too. And so, this seemingly offhand comment about Judas who betrayed Jesus really brings us to the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ as one who's betrayed so that he might forgive, one who's crucified in our place so that we can have life and life more abundant. And so betrayed, Jesus stands with you in your betrayal. And so as we try to summarize all of these these three things, kind of pull them all together, we, we see that Jesus prepares and sustains ministry teams through the gospel. So there's great news here. As Jesus, whom we've already seen as the Son of Man, who we've seen as the Lord of the Sabbath, who we've seen as the Son of God, this Jesus, the Messiah, is also the new and greater Moses who's forming a new and greater Israel represented by the choosing of twelve apostles so he might train them and send them out in his authority. There's a lot of blessings in this passage when we think about it, but we see that everything comes in this life with the curse as well, because we carry out this calling in the middle of a fallen world, surrounded by a different kingdom with a different set of rules. And relating to people who are so different can be wearisome at times. So are the cycles of ministry, which never seem to end. But the real gut punch, the real low blow, is betrayal. Jesus offers us rest in the midst of these things. Due to His gift of righteousness, we don't have to be perfect in how we relate to each other. United to Jesus, we receive His power to persevere under the toil of ministry. And Jesus knows what it's like to have been been betrayed. And he comes and comforts us with the knowledge that God will work even that for his good. In the case of Jesus' betrayal, similar to the betrayal of Joseph, which was for the salvation of many, Jesus' was for the greater salvation, the eternal salvation of many. And so the greater Moses offers us a greater kingdom with greater responsibilities and greater promises. Are we going to embrace this Christ who who was crucified? Are we going to embrace the cruciform or cross-formed life that he invites us to? Or are we going to seek safety by hiding from everybody? which inevitably means hiding from Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, your perfect son who perfectly modeled what ministry is like in a messed up world. Who experienced all of the pitfalls that we could ever experience and offers to stand with us in all of that? I thank you for a wonderful, merciful Savior. And Father, help us not to focus on the toil, on the difficulty, on the sadness but keep bringing our eyes back to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Back to Jesus, who for the joy that was before him thought little of the shame of the cross. Back to Jesus, who stands ready to embrace and encourage his people. Keep calling us back to Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.